from New Orleans, this is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. When you hear the name Harry Connick, the first person to come to mind is probably musician and actor Harry Connick Jr. What you may not know is that his father, Harry Connick Sr., is a celebrity in his own right, although for very different reasons. Harry Connick Sr. served for 30 years as the New Orleans District Attorney, but before that, he was a soldier, a business owner, and a husband. In the late 1960s, Harry Connick Sr. saw the corruption that plagued the New Orleans judicial system under District Attorney Jim Garrison and vowed to fight against it, valuing justice and ethics over politics. But becoming the DA didn't happen overnight, and it was far from easy. If I wanted something, I had to rely on myself to get more than what my parents provided. I just want to do things, and and, uh, I try not to let anything stand in my way. I guess the best example I can give you of that is uh, when I wanted to to be the district attorney. Yeah. Uh, I was a legal aid attorney over at Tulane and Broad, and... Then I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was called by the U.S. Attorney and offered a job, which I took. And then in 69, I quit to run against Jim Garrison. And I don't know whether you're familiar with Jim Garrison or not. If you're from yeah, here. I am a bit. He, yeah. he, was, he had been in office for, 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 at that time, eight years, I think, in 1969. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, he was powerful. He was yeah. a, a, a very strongly supported by a lot of people, or or they were intimidated by him. He he had done some things that caused people not to want to for him to know that they were supporting an opponent. Mm-hmm. I went all over town and I had people say, "Look, you know, I might vote for you if you run, but I can't support you." He called me an altar boy. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. So in a in an endearing way, in an endearing way. Oh no, or he meant to ridicule. Really ridicule you? Okay. So yeah. You, you know, no, it was it was, you know, being called an altar boy is not the a, a grown man being called an altar boy <laughs> is not the most flattering no. thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it seemed like you took it okay though. I mean, I did. I kicked his ass, <laughs> and I was going to do that from the beginning, and almost did it in 1969, and didn't. But I did it in 73. I was going to be DA. So let me ask you about that. What drove you to succeed? I had a wonderful father and wonderful mother. And I was born in 1926. Mm-hmm. And we came over. I, I lived in Mobile at that time. My family did. And we came over here in 1928 because my father got a job with the U.S. Corps of Engineers at the foot of Britannia Street on the river. And we lived on Plum Street, and uh, so times, you know, it was pre-depression and depression time. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in, in that, and, and uh, uh, it was, we were a close family. We uh, shared pants, <laughs> we shared mm-hmm. shoes, we shared jackets, whatever, and, uh, uh, you know, hand-me-downs. And, but we were extremely uh, satisfied with life and comfortable with life. And uh, we saw things that we wanted, as most kids do, but if you can't get them, you can't get them. And mm-hmm. we were told that you know, we're not able to do that. And it was done in such a way that we accepted it and 
went on about our business. So it was a it was a, a good family life, and the times I think were just splendid. The the, the uh, even though there was financial distress in the country at that time, and low salaries and people out of work and and that, we uh, had I think. A, a great neighborhood. It was on Plum Street, five blocks from Montana Dollar Rosa, where we all went to school and to church. And uh, the neighbors were great. Uh, they were friendly and they were wonderful. And uh, it, there was a sort of a cohesiveness to the neighborhood. And uh, Montana Dollar Rosa was a good school, mm-hmm. run by nuns, and uh, and the church was. It was a it was a good place. There's a beautiful church to begin with, and yeah. so so we had a we had a, a a normal I guess for the times and for the kind of neighborhood we lived in, a normal living existence. We would go to I, I did a lot of uh, if I wanted spending money, I would go get it. I would go cut grass or pick up coat hangers or. To, to, Whatever had to be done, I would uh, yeah. uh, that I could do, uh, I would do, and and I had money in my pocket, and uh, so it was it was a, a satisfying for me to be able to to do those things, and sometimes help my parents with it. Well, you mentioned that you grew up in the depression, but you're also one of eight children too. Eight children at any given time in history could be difficult <laughs> so, in the family. So. Uh, the family dynamics at that time, did you feel the stress from your mom and dad of economic woes or some sometimes um, when when it was tough mm-hmm. and uh, I'd have my mother on the phone with someone trying to collect a bill, and she was very patient and she was very understanding and she uh, able to, she was able to handle it and 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 calm everything and and uh, it was just difficult, but and they, they all got paid, yeah. And uh, but not when they wanted to be paid, and they were accepted my mother's representations to them. And uh, go ahead. You 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 describe your family as it as having kind of a calm atmosphere in the house. Um, when I might expect it to be more rambunctious with all the kids. It was running rambunctious around. with calm in the sense of of uh, being together, being. A unit. So, uh, what was your mom like growing up? She was she was delightful. She was absolutely a incredible woman. She was she was a she from Mobile, and she was one of about four or five children. And her mother died when she was very young, twelve, thirteen, and and uh, her dad remarried, and so she and her sister were sent to a hospital mm-hmm. to become nurses at Providence Hospital in Mobile. And my mother became a nurse, and the nuns taught them and taught them about medicine, about nursing, and about religion, about God. Mm-hmm. And uh, that equipped my mother so well for her life. And uh, she she was generous and... and uh, very, very giving, and, and, and her, her husband came first, and we were next, and we knew that and accepted that. 
And, and uh, we were, as you say, rambunctious. We, we were, as all kids are. Uh, but uh, my dad was the one who, who, when he said it, we did it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, if we didn't, if we did something that we should not have done, we it got spanked with a belt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and I think people talk about that, and some say, well, that's terrible. But I never got a spanking I didn't deserve. And it wasn't that bad, you mm-hmm. know. I felt it. We all felt it. But uh, was your dad a tough man? He was. He was strict about certain things. Like what? Uh, he was. Well, he wanted obedience. He wanted uh, do your lessons, and the main thing respect and respect for your mother, and mm-hmm. and uh, your brothers and sisters and other people. Uh, it was. Uh, we lived in a mixed neighborhood, and on Plum Street, uh, all of the white people lived, and, and on, the, on Oak Street, the street behind us, yeah. were uh, it was a it was black. Yeah, and so and I'd have to walk through those neighborhoods, and it, it was uh, it was totally mixed. Mm-hmm. And we walked through those neighborhoods when I was a kid, and uh, we never heard anything but uh, treat people with respect. Yeah, and uh, everybody. And uh, things were tough. I think we, uh, on on uh, on Saturday night, a uh, Friday night rather, which was a a, a day of, of abstinence from meat. We we would uh, my mother would come up with grits and eggs <laughs> to her mama, you know, and, and, you know, and uh, we would how about some fish or something like that, you know. So, and and she she was terrific about it, and we all. Dug in and got a fill of everything. You uh, mean uh, every Friday because you guys, uh, she was observing. Uh, she'd have gumbo or she'd have sh- uh, fish, mm-hmm. a shrimp, some kind of a shrimp dish. But sometimes it was. Uh, I'm telling you, man, those times were lean. What were your parents' expectations of you as you got older during the, that time? What did they think that you would do? Did they? I never thought about. I didn't think about that. Uh, I thought about what was there, and I thought about. I I would have. I I was aware of things, Mm -hmm. and uh, but I didn't want to. I said I didn't want to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. I had no desire to be or inclination to be a a lawyer. That college was a part of that, Mm -hmm. and. we, I didn't even think about going to college in those days. It was just out beyond us. And uh, so, what did you think that you would do when you were a kid? I really didn't give a lot of thought to it. Um, I, I was <laughs> interested and concerned about today, and uh, you know, we were well taken care of and very satisfied. And I knew I would do something, but I didn't know what what it would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really wanted to be a baseball pitcher, and uh, I like I like played ball. I did did fairly well, but not not good enough. Did you play in high school? We didn't have a team. I went uh, during the war. We moved to to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. and I went to school in East Point, Georgia, right on the outside of Atlanta. And I played basketball, but they had no baseball team. But we had organized a a baseball team of that in that age group. And we played. And so it was a regular league we played in. So I did play in high school. You mentioned the war as well. You later went to the Pacific 
my dad, my dad had been in the reserves mm-hmm. uh, and uh, as a second lieutenant, and then uh, it, before the war, he was called to active duty and served at uh, Biloxi, Keesley Air Force Base, yeah. and then Atlanta, and then he went to uh, Canada and then to Persia. My brother Jimmy got in at 17 as soon as he could with the approval of my parents. And in 40, 41, I guess it was. And, and uh, no, yeah, right, right after the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, went to training, I think in Virginia somewhere, in the Army. He, was in the, what the, he wanted to be in the cavalry, mm-hmm. the horse cavalry, but they, that was, was not in existence really at that time. So he was in the mechanized cavalry. cavalry. But he served, uh, went right to Morocco, to Casablanca, mm-hmm. and went, went all the way across North Africa with the troops, and then went to Sicily, and then went into Italy. Wow. So he had a long time, a very bad time in the war. Then my turn came, and I went into the Navy. When I was lived in Atlanta, I entered the Navy, went to boot camp in San Diego, then uh, went to amphibious training in San Diego, mm-hmm. right off of Coronado there. Yeah. I drove a Higgins boat. I was mm-hmm. being taught to drive a Higgins boat. Which were made in New Orleans, right? The Higgins oh, boat? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, could, we used to go by that factory on Metairie Road and, and, and uh, City Park Avenue. And uh, where that big metal building was where those boats were being built. So you were in the war and you were training on the Higgins boat. Did you know while you were... Uh, training on the Higgins boat that they were made in New Orleans, or was it? Oh yeah, I was, well, so you knew. I was there when that, they started up that business. You know, was there anything sentimental about that for you, well, or was, any meaningfulness within that? Yeah, so it, yeah, because it was from my hometown, and you know, this boat that I'm <laughs> driving is was made in my hometown, and uh, but I went I took, after my amphibious training. I took a ship. Yeah. On a, a, an attack transport, APA 178, and we did a, a shakedown cruise up to the Vancouver, British Columbia, and back down. And then we went overseas, and, and I spent, uh, I was at Okinawa, mm-hmm. and I was at Iwo Jima, and we were part of, uh, are you familiar with the Magic Carpet run? The mm-hmm. Magic Carpet's occur periodically when they want mass evacuations of people from troubled areas. So we took some troops, picked them up and from different places that had oh, yeah. been in battle. And we went to Japan uh, two times after the war. So w- when you were in war, I mean, what, what did it feel like for you? Was it, well, was it threatening? Well, I was a I mean, ship, and, and again, I felt, uh, I felt I was with a group that I was very comfortable with, my friends. And uh, some of us had been to boot camp together, some to amphibious training together. But it was, it was um, we, were, we were in the war, and uh, we knew about it. We knew the consequences of getting torpedoed or consequences mm-hmm. of a bomber hitting us. We were on the beach at Okinawa and couldn't get off of the beach and, and because we delivered supplies and mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, at a place called Naha, and we couldn't. If you got into that landing area there on this this beach, 
you couldn't get out because the boats behind you, mm -hmm. the, the boats could not be unloaded quick enough. Mm -hmm. So we spent the night there, and then there were, we had to run to inside in some caves because of the uh, bomber mm -hmm. coming over that, and, and things like that. But nothing, you know, if we were careful about it, concerned about it. Was that traumatizing to you at the time? In a way, it just scared the daylights out of you, you know, when you yeah. see something like that. And... Uh, did you ever have nightmares of the event, like no. as opposed to stress? I wasn't. No, my brother Jimmy had the nightmares. He was in the war. I really, I was in the war, but not like the the Marines we watched on Iwo Jima. Sure. You know, or the or the Army people we watched on Okinawa, with carrying guns, and being shot at by Japanese, and watching flamethrowers. Right. And uh, we, we we watched the war on Iwo Jima for eight days. We couldn't get in to evacuate anybody. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know, you do, you know, you just do what you're supposed to do. So you come back from war, you meet Anita. I think you met her um, in Mobile, was it? I met Anita Livingston in, in Nouveau, French Morocco, right outside of Casablanca. Uh, she was on her way back from Turkey, where she had been working for the Corps of Engineers. And, uh, and I was working for the Corps of Engineers in, in North Africa, in Casablanca, where our office was, and, and at that, later on at Nouveau Sounds slightly romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we came back home. Uh, after we got married, I, I, I contracted tuberculosis. Hmm. And uh, just as I was getting ready to get a... I was been offered a job at the Air Force. I worked for the Corps of Engineers. But we were building air bases in Morocco. Mm -hmm. And the people, uh, 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 one of the officers out there that I worked with wanted me to come to work for the Air Force, and I was getting ready to do that. Then I came down with tuberculosis, and they shipped me to uh, Frankfurt and to Wiesbaden and then to uh, a number of other hospitals. So I came back and, and, uh, and ultimately came back to New Orleans mm -hmm. in, in, in February, left there in, in Christmas time in Morocco and ended up two months later back in New Orleans with tuberculosis with, on complete bed rest. With Anita? In Anita followed and, and uh, then I met her at, uh, in Alabama and then we drove back to New Orleans. I, I, I left, I was AWL from the hospital and, and uh, you want AWOL to go be with, to pick up Anita? Oh, oh, well, yeah, that's a, that, that's a story. But anyway, I left and I came back home with her. We drove back home in a Studebaker coupe, a Starlight Studebaker coupe <laughs> <laughs> that I bought when I was in North Africa. New, brand new car. Anyway, we drove back to New Orleans and uh, I had to go into the hospital. And she couldn't get a job because New Orleans at that time was a provincial sort of a place and unless you were from here or knew mm -hmm. somebody they didn't want to hire you mm -hmm. so she 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 was she worked for the US attorney in in Morocco and uh, she's incredible stenographer and secretary and manager she was managed an office for for AIU underwriters a big insurance company in, mm -hmm. in Casablanca but uh, anyway, so, so she we had some money, and, and, uh, and she opened up a record shop. And I was, I was sick. I was on my back for nine to ten months and then slowly recovered. But she looked for something that 
she could do that she she didn't have to work for somebody else and that and I, after that I went to work there and then I would I would go to school at Tulane in the morning and I'd come in at noon and she would leave to go to UNO. Now you're talking about law school at the time? This or was under- undergraduate school first and then law because I was advanced and so, she, so was she in college. She mm-hmm. at Monmouth Junior College in New Jersey where she was from and I at Loyola. What did you major in? Business. Business? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, but I finished my undergraduate work and got that degree and then went to Tulane Law School and then after I graduated, we sold the record shop, and she went to Tulane. For law school. For law school. Now, how was it that you ended up deciding to go to law school? Because you mentioned before you had no inclination to go there initially. So what happened there? Well, I, I, uh, I took an examination that was a, a t- in, 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 at Loyola. Mm-hmm. That was a course in business law. And the teacher was, was a fellow named Will Boudreaux, at that time a practicing lawyer in town. Very nice man. And uh, my brother Jimmy was a lawyer. He mm-hmm. had gone to law school. And that kind of gave me the initial thought about it. He, he, he came after, after I took a test. Mm-hmm. He came back and he said, uh, this is a very good examination, <laughs> which surprised me. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that's not my highest qualification is is good grades, you know. But uh, I said, thank you. And he said, no, I'm serious. This is really good. He said, have you ever thought about law school? And I said, a a little bit. He Mm -hmm. said, well, you ought to start thinking about it positively. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was graduating, and so I did. And and, uh, that was the impetus. That was the last push that I think I needed to do that. How did you do in law school? Uh, I was in the upper part of the lower third of the class. And you were older at the time, too. You weren't like... Oh, yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I was in the late 30s, yeah, 40s. And, and uh, late... Yeah, I went there when I was, let's see... I was in my 30s. And uh, mm-hmm. it was tough because we had a business and we were buying a house and... Uh, you know, running from one business to the other and then going to law school, that's not the best formula for learning how to mm. be a lawyer. The DA position, the district attorney, must be a very uh, stressful job compared to other it, it jobs. Is. Um, what were the stresses for you with that job, and how did it personally affect you? Well, you know, um, I was really lucky. I had the people who worked for me, uh, the, the lawyers, the investigators, the clerks. For the most part, we had some negatives along there, but for the most part, uh, it was uh, good, good people. And I relied on them, and I trusted them. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the time, that trust was rewarded because they worked. And they, they just, uh, many of them are judges now mm-hmm. and have been judges. And uh, good, honest family people. And, uh, of course, there's always a certain percentage, as you know, that's not going to follow the, yeah. the leader. Yeah. And they're going to do it their way. And, and uh, so that was very disappointing to me. And there's some, I had some huge disappointments in my career. Like what? Well, the, uh, 
some of the things that, that happened, uh, different cases that, that, uh, that the office was involved in and the mm-hmm. way the press treated them, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not, not getting it factually correct mm-hmm. and uh, having enough <coughs> information to draw an inference, but an improper inference about what really happened. Want to set the record straight? With anything in particular? No, no, because it's 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 too. Uh, I've accepted it, and uh, I think it's just you know. I get. I don't mind getting criticized in the paper, mm-hmm. but I, if if you're going to hit me, hit me fair. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, I, I really that's part of. I love the job, and I would go back today if I could. That's. If I could do the job that when you're younger, you have the vigor to do, mm-hmm. and that's important. How did you know that you were going to run for DA and what, rather than somebody else doing it? Like, what made you certain that you were going to do that? Well, what, you know something I found out is that I really don't care what the other guy does. You, you do what you want to do, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in politics, you're met with this, well, suppose so-and-so runs. I, I, don't, I don't care whether he runs or not. <laughs> That's not I'm going to run my campaign. And uh, Well, how did you know, though, that you were even going to run? How, how did you gain the resolve within yourself to say, I'm going to run and be DA? What, what drove you to do that? I felt, I, felt, I felt competent in what I wanted to do. I felt I had the ability to do it. Mm-hmm. I knew I did. I felt that it, being in that office, in that DA's office, or that DA's building, uh, as a legal aid attorney for four years, and watching what went on, uh, I said, I, I can do a hell of a lot better than these guys are doing. Another thing that I, that I saw that stimulated me was the way the arrested subjects were treated. Hmm. Uh, they were arrested today. They'd spend two days, two weeks, two months in jail, mm-hmm. and nothing happened to them. Mm-hmm. The, they weren't charged, and uh, I would represent them. And I'd have to, uh, I, would, I would hear these things, and I would, I'd learned about what the DA was doing and not doing. Yeah. And you resolve, well, I'm not going to do it that way. If, I, if, if somebody gets arrested, first of all, we're not going to charge anybody unless they committed a crime and we have some reasonable, reasonable ethical way to prove it. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, that led to a, 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 the, a policy of the office of not accepting cases that we cannot in good conscience prosecute. Mm-hmm. There's an ethical responsibility that the prosecutor has. What have been the, the greatest downs for you, but the greatest challenges for you to get through in your life, you think? Well, uh, above all would be the loss of, of Anita. She had cancer, and uh, that, was, that was just devastating to all of us. The Har- Harry uh, uh, was... 14, Susanna was 17. Mm. It's a tough time for children. No time was a good time to lose someone you love. I want to ask you about parenting. How did you parent two successful, or two children to success? I tried to continue what what my wife wanted to do for them. She was very aware 
of the them and what they wanted to do. I was two. Okay. Uh, 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 Susanna wanted to be a doctor, so uh, her mother would feed her uh, biology on small scales because yeah. she, she, she knew about biology and uh, uh, about languages. We mm-hmm. both loved to, to, we traveled a lot, so we, mm-hmm. we, we languages were in the house. And uh, Harris wanted to be a piano player. And so she saw to it that, that uh, he took lessons from the earliest possible age, got into NOCA. She was the one who was responsible for that. When your kid, child tells you, I want to be a piano player, now Harry was very young when he showed interest in mm-hmm. it, correct? Right. And it wasn't a fleeting thing. He, spent, he was very dedicated from the beginning. Right. For you, was it? did you ever question on whether that would be a viable career, given it can be a difficult career? No, I, you know, I'm... I believe that you have to let your children be what they want to be, mm-hmm. as long as it's honorable and honest, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and you, they, you, they're qualified to do it. If you, you know, you work with them and you find out it's not, you dissuade them. You, yeah. But the, we were supportive of our children. And I just think that, that what you are, if you want it to be that way, it'll come out. Uh, one time I, when I got elected, my father told me that, uh, he said, son, look, that's going to be a tough office, you know, the, the day I was sworn in. And uh, I said, I know, Dad. I said, uh, and he said, just, um, you know, you have to be careful about things. And I, said, uh, and I said, let me tell you something, Dad. If I don't know now what I'm supposed to know after being your son for all <laughs> these years, then I'm in trouble, you know. <laughs> and he laughed and... and uh, because that was drilled into us, you know, that, 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 you know, do the right thing, love your neighbor. My guest today has been former New Orleans District Attorney Harry Connick Sr. For more information about Mr. Connick, please visit itsneworleans.com. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. Thank you for joining me on this edition of Mindset. Mindset is a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. Mindset's technical director is Eric Morrow. Our associate producer is Chris Kehoe. The fabulous audio quality of the show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio equipment and live sound products around, including Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Aeros Studio monitors, and much more. You can visit PreSonus.com for more information about that. On itsneworleans.com, you can listen to other episodes of Mindset, as well as Out to Lunch with Peter Raschuti, live from Commander's Palace, Happy Hour with Grant Morris, True to the Game with Chris True and Tammy Nelson, Vietnola, our show about the New Orleans Vietnamese community, and Midnight Menu Plus One with Margot Moss and the man who ate New Orleans, Ray Canada. You can keep up with Mindset on Facebook, Twitter, and social media. On all of it, we're It's New Orleans. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or another podcast app, Thanks for subscribing. Take a moment to rate and review Mindset that helps other people find us. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.